0: Welcome to Episode 9 of the Community Renewables Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag, and I'm here with Energy Transition Chronicler Quack Morris.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: In previous episodes, we have reviewed many aspects of feed in tariffs and auctions for renewables. Today, we want to focus on the outcome of these new auctions in Germany and, second, how the old wind farms are faring now that the 20 years of feed-in tariffs have elapsed. You see, 2000 was the first year that wind turbines were built under the feed-in tariffs of the Renewable Energy Act or EEG. So their 20 years of feed-in tariffs ended on January the 1st of this year. Craig will tell us more about this in a second, but first, I wanted to come back to something that Frank Michael Ule said. You may remember him as the guy in Rhein-Hunsrück, where revenue from community wind farms helped finance a giant suspended footbridge. And this footbridge has made this economically struggling rural area a summer resort once again. Frank-Michael said something really important about communities being able to do a lot more than just build wind and solar. So, before we delve into Craig's policy analysis for those tags. Let's listen
2: to Frank Michael. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, it's always
3: painful when talk about our efforts in the county only revolves around wind power. An energy transition always has to start with energy conservation. That's why the energy conservation directives are so important to me. That way, We can really make progress by generating our own heat and power at home. There's one example I always show visitors. For the past 10 years, we have heated our school centers with cuttings from people's gardens. In this rural area, people have big yards. In winter, they prune their hedges and trees. All these clippings are brought to a central collection area, where our community waste service prepares it all for use as bioenergy. The final product is a bit like wood chips, which we use in three school centers. We save around 800,000 liters of heating oil annually as a result. Five jobs were created in the process, and even then we only use half of the cuttings people bring us. I like this example because it shows the potential that you basically have everywhere. And this should be the starting point of the energy transition. You first have a round table and gather ideas, you then look into the potential. I am convinced that this is the starting point. We have had visitors from more than 40 countries and we like to show them this example because it convinces people of the potential that every rural region worldwide has.
0: So, biowaste. Rural communities have tremendous potential here. And we didn't do an episode on that, Craig.
1: No, and it's unfortunate because too many people think of biomass as energy crops or even fresh timber, which we shouldn't cut down. So, it's really important to investigate the potential of biowaste, which is also biomass. In rural areas, the potential can be great, as Frank-Michaël says.
0: There's probably lots of other things we haven't had time to cover as well. Things like community mobility concepts, things like car sharing and multimodal mobility, or combining several modes of transport on one trip. I mean, we mentioned the on-demand van service that also exists in Rhein-Hunsrück, But bike lanes are also built by communities, not generally national governments. And then there are community building renovations, solar on apartment complexes, climate adaptation, so things like urban greenery, grid buybacks and energy conservation. When we talk about the energy transition, We mostly talk about electricity, so it's important to remember that communities can do much more.
1: Yeah, communities really are where the rubber hits the road, where national climate policies are implemented, and where people feel changes. I might also add farmers markets. Agriculture has a huge impact on the climate, and farmers markets are a great way to give local farmers direct access to consumers. Plus, you get to know your farmers at the same time. That's creating community. But this podcast is also about Red 2 and its call for community renewables. And that largely revolves around electricity, hence our focus.
0: Okay, then let's review the results of auctions.
1: Let's start with solar, and the results are not bad. But first, we'll review two terms. And you briefly explained this last week, Rebecca undersubscribed and oversubscribed. An auction is undersubscribed when, say, you auction 100 megawatts, but get bids for less than that, so demand exceeds supply and prices go up. When an auction is oversubscribed, more bids are placed than can be built, so supply exceeds demand and prices go down. And since lower prices are a stated aim of auctions, Oversubscribed rounds are generally considered a success. But in terms of climate change mitigation, oversubscribed auctions are not good. For instance, in 2019, developers in Germany actually bid around 3.8 gigawatts in all five rounds of solar auctions, which is pretty close to the amount that needs to be built annually for Germany to eventually have 100% renewables but less than 1.5 gigawatts was on auction. So again, the market offered to build 3.8 and Germany only allowed 1.5. So Germany actually turned down more than half of the solar market last year. Now, of course, the market for solar arrays smaller than 750 kilowatts could still go forward outside of auctions last year. And we actually built 3.9 gigawatts last year. But more than 80% of those arrays that were built were developed outside of the auction scheme. So basically, small solar, including community projects, have kept the German solar market running. With onshore wind auctions, the situation is the opposite. They are undersubscribed, meaning that the market does not even bid as much as is on auction. In the last 12 rounds held in the past three years, the volume on offer was only awarded in full two times.
0: It sounds like auctions are bad if they are undersubscribed and bad if they are oversubscribed. So when are they good?
1: Well, over and undersubscribed are relative terms. If we auction 500 megawatts and we get, say, 480 or 520 in bids, we have basically hit the target more or less. The problem comes when we reject more than half of the solar over a whole year, or when bids are only submitted for two-thirds of the volume, which is what happened in both onshore wind rounds in 2020, by the way. The main problem is that these auctions are too small, and there is increasingly no way to build without taking part in them. We have scenarios for what 100% renewables looks like in Germany, you know, estimates for how much wind and solar need to be built. These estimates don't always overlap, but you could take a mean value and start from there and review progress every few years. For instance, if we need 100 megawatts of wind and 100 megawatts of solar, you could divide those numbers by 20 years and auction 5 gigawatts annually of each. And for wind power... Around 2 gigawatts a year of old turbines will be dismantled in the 2020s.
0: Which is our topic today.
1: Right. So you'd have to replace that as well, giving us a need for maybe 7 gigawatts of wind, for instance. But last year, Germany auctioned only half that. And again, there's almost no way to build wind farms outside of auctions.
0: What about the price Have auctions at least made renewables less expensive?
1: This is a tricky question because we don't know how feed-in tariffs would have developed. They were set politically, so you could have adjusted them up or down. But if we just draw a line forward from the old feed-in tariff reductions, for solar, the price probably would have reached 6 cents in the summer of 2020. In auctions, we fell below five last year. Now, prices have since risen slightly, but let's say auctions have now reached five cents, whereas feed in tariffs would be at six. But even then, we are comparing apples and oranges. Feed in tariffs apply when your project is finished. The price is set when you connect to the grid. In auctions, the price is set at the beginning before you even start building. And you have a few years to finish. So auctions had this great public relations trick all along. On a market with rapidly falling prices, they reported these future prices, which were then compared to feed-in tariffs of today. So the comparison was unfair all along.
0: And what about community wind farms? Germany tried to give special treatment to such projects in the first three rounds of auctions and then abandoned it because no one was happy.
1: Right. So, according to a study this spring by F.A. Wind, and we'll put a link in the show notes for those who read German, only 12% of the community projects have been built from rounds in 2017 and early 2018. Now, they still have until 2021 to finish, but as one expert told me by email, and he wishes to remain anonymous, these projects will probably not be built at all under the agreed conditions.
0: Because the agreed prices are not sufficient for community projects?
1: Let's postpone that. We'll come back to it in a second.
0: Okay, but why was everyone so unhappy about the special treatment of community projects in the first three auction rounds?
1: Basically, none of these projects were seen as genuine citizen groups. Instead, wind farm developers had organized the groups themselves. The groups often consisted of company employees and their friends. This is called gaming the system. So whenever policymakers provide special incentives, companies try to change their business models to get that special treatment. And there's nothing unethical about this. I personally know and very much like one of the firms that gained the community wind incentives. It's just something that policymakers have to keep in mind. Whenever you provide special treatment for certain groups, you incentivize market players to try to fit that description.
0: So there were no true community projects at all applying, only those organized by developers?
1: Basically, the developers complied with the law, but it's hard to define community project by law. So practically everyone looked at the outcome and said, I know a grassroots group when I see one, and that ain't it.
0: It's like what Dirk van Sintjan talked about in Episode 7. Big firms setting up citizen groups in order to be eligible for special treatment as community projects in Belgium. Exactly. So Germany got rid of the old community energy definition and replaced it with?
1: The benefits were weakened so that fewer firms want to game the system. So for instance, in the two rounds of onshore wind auctions in 2020, only 5% of the contracts awarded went to bidders who qualified as community projects under the auctions definition. But fewer benefits also means the policy is less attractive to genuine community groups.
0: Which is why Andreas Wieck said in Episode 7 that no energy co-ops have even placed bids. And conventional energy companies probably don't appreciate any special treatment for business types other than their own.
1: Probably not.
0: What about technology-neutral auctions? You only talk about wind and solar above? but the EU requires member states to start holding auctions for all renewable technologies simultaneously. So wind and solar compete with each other.
1: Yeah, Germany has held a few already, and solar has always won the entire volume. In fact, in the last round, 200 megawatts was auctioned and 553 megawatts was bid, all of it solar. Wind doesn't even bother trying.
0: Why is that?
1: In the past year or so, the wind auctions have come in close to the maximum auction price of 6.2 cents. But the average price bid in this year's technology neutral round was 5.3 cents, and it was all solar. So solar is now around one cent cheaper than wind, even in cloudy Germany this policy makes no sense. As I just mentioned, there will be some ideal balance between wind and solar. You have more solar power in the summer and more wind power in the winter, at least in Germany, and the less you get that balance right, the more your power storage costs increase, and they might skyrocket. I mean, this is what Jakob Schlant was talking about in episode 5, when he said that system costs Are more important now than the cost of solar or wind alone. And if you make solar and wind compete in Germany, you get only solar, but we might need more wind than solar in most scenarios if we want to reach 100% renewables. And so this one cent difference between wind and solar is irrelevant. We need to roughly double the amount of both wind and solar that gets built annually in Germany. The price signals from the technologies themselves will never bring about the right balance. We need to steer market development based on our best modeling. And the annual targets need to be reviewed regularly as our models and our understanding becomes further refined.
0: Which reminds me, I asked you whether auctions had brought costs down and you only answered about solar. How are the prices of wind developing?
1: Um, They went down initially, which led to a lot of talk about how great auctions are, but now prices are back up again. The average bid price has been above six cents for roughly the past two years, close to the maximum. We switched to auctions, partly to allow the market to set prices, but in effect, the German network agency now sets the prices when it defines the maximum bidding price.
0: That sounds ridiculous. I think we have a good overview of the switch from feed-in tariffs to auctions. So let's move on to our first guest, Stefan Xenger, who will share with us his view on the effect of this policy change on the diversity of market players. Stefan Xenger is Secretary General of the World Wind Energy Association. He has been active in the international renewable energy community for the past 20 years. For instance, he helped initiate the International Renewable Energy Alliance and the global Go 100% Renewables campaign and received the International Community Power Award. One thing Stefan mentions in passing might not be clear. He says that permits are being challenged in Germany. He is referring to the court cases against the construction permits for new wind farms. A lot of projects are taken to court these days in Germany. So, here's Craig's interview with Stefan.
1: You have published this article entitled A Dangerous Trend is Challenging the Success of Wind Power Around the Globe, Concentration and Monopolization. Mm -hmm. And yet you represent the uh, World Wind Energy Association. So, why is concentration and monopolization a problem? Uh, There is
4: no problem with big uh, investment with larger wind farms. I'm mm-hmm. certainly not of the opinion that we should only have small wind turbines or, or small wind farms. Now, the point is, and we should start really, I think that article is a good starting point where I try to um, kind of outline the trend that I see on a global level. And Germany is one of the main battlegrounds for that. And this is not only about larger wind farms and not even about offshore versus onshore this is not about do we have some larger companies versus also some communities that are investing this is really about whether we will see in the future a very small group of large investors that really are dominating the market in a way that it's a kind of monopolistic situation. And unfortunately, we see such a trend Um, that, of course, uh, is the structure that we have in the, let me call it traditional, for example, oil and gas sector, where you have only uh, a handful of really global players that are supplying oil and gas. And there are some uh, companies, they obviously want to have such structure, such a situation also in wind energy. You can see this on the supply side, of course more and more um, wind turbine manufacturers are struggling and of course also because of the crisis that have been uh, that, that's been imposed by introducing the auctions in countries like Germany. and I think as I said Germany is the, the most important example in all this. but it's now even worse because the uh, battle or the trend towards a more monopolistic structure and a, a monostructure with only a handful of players, is now also to a certain degree happening on the investor side and on the side of the wind farm operators.
1: Okay, well, let me interject here for just a second because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we're moving to auctions in order to get the price down. What exactly is the problem if we make it cheaper to, um, you know, combat come climate change?
4: Well, uh, first, this is an assumption which is just not true when you look at the German case now, that uh, the price hasn't gone down. The price is now higher than it used to be under the feed-in tariff For wind power. For wind power, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, before we continue, the next part of the conversation is pretty deep. It concerns another factor that makes auctions look cheaper than feed-in tariffs: the reference wind turbine. Can you explain that, Craig?
1: So the the reference wind turbine has always been there. It was a part of feed-in tariffs as well. The idea is that you expect a wind turbine to produce a certain amount of electricity. If it's on a really windy site, it will produce more. And if it's on a less windy site, it generates less. So paying only one price will produce windfall profits in windy sites and not provide profits at all in less windy ones. So the reference wind turbine is then defined as 100% of the feed-in tariff. In practice, a wind farm with lots of wind might get, say, 80% of the rate, while a wind farm in a less windy area might get 120% of the rate. With feed-in tariffs, this range was always published in advance, so we always spoke of 5 to 9 cents for wind, for instance. But for auctions, only the average winning price is reported, even though this reference adjustment still applies. So you hear, say, 6.1 cents, and you think, wow, that's near the bottom of the 5 to 9 cent range of feed-in tariffs, so auctions must be awesome. But researchers have tried to estimate the average that is actually paid under auctions, including this reference turbine adjustment. The literature is only in German, but we'll put a link in the show notes in case someone wants to follow up. And what they found was that, just to take one example, in the fourth round of auctions, the actual amount paid was probably closer to 7.2 cents, nearly one cent higher than the reported average unadjusted auction price of 6.3 cents. And they also found that feed-in tariffs... Could have produced an average price of 6.34 cents in that round, including this adjustment.
0: So, feed and tariffs would have been around, what is that, maybe 10% cheaper?
1: That sounds about right.
0: The researchers estimate that only the first round produced auction prices lower than the feed and tariffs would have been, including this adjustment. And they found something else weird. Because the initial rounds had produced low prices and later rounds much higher prices, the early winners probably won't build at all. All winners place a deposit that they lose if they don't build. It's an incentive, a penalty to complete projects. But the study found that it would be cheaper for these early winners to forfeit the deposit and rebid to get the higher prices possible today. They expect this to happen, and if it does, lots of that early auction volume will simply be lost.
1: Yeah, it's pretty bad.
0: Okay, let's get back to what Stefan Sänger had to say about the reference turbine factor in auctions.
4: So when you make such a calculation, you um, end with around, well, it's around 8 cents per kilowatt hour.
1: hmm even though the maximum okay. bid right now is 6.2 cents, I believe, right? Yeah, but
4: there you must calculate this factor, which uh-huh. is public. You know? This right. is not secret, so everybody can make that calculation. So that is around sixty percent higher now. I mean, the auction's results are fixed 16% higher than the feed-in tariff. 16%.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. But still, what exactly is the problem with um, you know having a, a growing, maturing market concentrate and uh monopolization is probably too strong of a word but an Mm oligopoly.
4: yeah that that's a bit of course too short-sighted if you only look at yeah we want to have um, low price because you expect that then you would have more installed capacity but that's the second factor what you can see in germany is that the market collapsed so we have now um it's around 20 percent of the market volume was installed 2019 Compared to 2017, Hmm. that was the the last year when everybody still got a feed-in tariff. Hmm. So the market volume has collapsed. So obviously it is, although the prices are higher, so as a consumer we pay more for the power from wind, but there's less volume installed. Why has the market collapsed so much? And I mean, many people in Germany um, from Especially larger countries. They would uh, talk about problems with uh, permission mm-hmm. so that Too many permits. projects are brought to court.
1: Yeah, permits are being challenged.
4: We we are We've done a two and a half year study on on Germany and we interviewed several times community wind stakeholders and We've asked them. What are the challenges? What are the problems you're seeing and? Those problems were also, of course, they all, also play a role, getting permits in place. Those problems didn't exist to such a degree when we still had a market structure with many, many local investors, with local groups, in particular communities, cooperatives, whatever. I mean, that's what we call community energy, community power, community wind. The, the main point here is local investors that are driving the, the projects locally mm. so that you have, I mean, they know their places. So they take care of problems that might might arise from the, problem, from the project. They talk to the mayor. They talk to even environmental groups. Maybe environmental groups are part of it. And such kind of investors see it increasingly difficult to compete on the market mm. with auctions. And the main problem is that many of them, they don't have, like you would be as a major developer and nothing against major developers. You have 10, 20 projects which you develop in parallel. They can kind of counterbalance. If they don't get all the projects, they get only half of them. Okay, they lose half a million, but on the other side, they earn good income from other projects. Mm. I mean, even the remuneration is now higher than it was before. But if you are a farmer and you want to talk to 10 of your neighbors and get them to invest in a wind farm project, initially each of them maybe 50,000, you will not tell them maybe your money is going to be lost.
1: Right. Do you think the Renewable Energy Directive 2, which calls for community energy, does it help? In general,
4: it's really a great breakthrough. And really concrete relations to our colleagues in Brussels, and that is, I think, mainly ERES and RESCOPE, those two organizations, Mm -hmm. and I think Friends of the Earth also, they they were very active on it. That's really a great achievement that they've achieved, that for the first time there is now a recognition in European legislation of the importance of community energy. Mm -hmm. That's a major step. Mm -hmm. The threshold, for example, is rather small, it will probably not help much.
1: It's, it's still discriminatory if we say that community projects or small projects or of whatever size don't have to take place in auctions. They can have feed-in tariffs, but the bigger projects have to compete in, in auctions. Um, that seems discriminatory.
4: From my side, we wouldn't need any kind of discrimination. The feed-in system was not discriminating against anyone, any kind of investor. Everybody was free to invest and had the same access to the remuneration.
1: Right, but but having feed-in tariffs as a carve-out for community groups, but if you have a mixed system where FITs look privileged and then you define who can get into them, that seems like the kind of thing that wouldn't go down well with DG competition
4: I can give you of course a political answer to this and I mean one is that there is an explicit goal to support communities Mm -hmm. but there is a principle of subsidiarity which means that citizens should get some privileges compared to larger corporations that is what uh, is the the, the basic principle of the European integration
1: in this uh, paper that you published in September of 2019 Mm-hmm. You, uh, this is a direct quote. You have, I think, 10 recommendations, and I'm reading yeah. number eight. You call for the, quote, creation of a non-discriminatory remun- remuneration system beyond auctions in Europe in accordance with the decisions by the European Court of Justice. Why couldn't you just say, we want feed-in tariffs? Because really, nobody is outward outwardly calling for feed-in tariffs today, and you would think... Now that the European Court of Justice has settled the matter once and for all and said feed-in tariffs
4: are fine, they're legal. I think firstly, it is really important uh, to refer more to the principle. Mm -hmm. And the principle is is non-discriminatory and and also make clear um, to those who are now pretending to protect the free market that a auction system is not free of discrimination because it does not allow everyone Mm. to take part in that market. Maybe some people have some ideas how we could have a system that is not in particular a feed-in tariff but still not discriminating those key investors. And let me really again underline the community, in particular community wind investors, are key investors. Without them, we will not get the acceptance that we need and mm-hmm. we will not get the volume that we need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, yeah, at the same time, of course, also people are, some even in the in the associations, they are hesitating uh, to call for feed-in tariffs.
1: That's a, a, also... A policy that basically sounds like its time has passed. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. for some
4: psychologically was a little bit uh, a problem, but um, um, that's maybe... At the moment, mentally, the biggest barrier. Yeah. You also talk about
1: the professionalization of community energy groups. What do you mean by that?
4: We've asked those community experts, investors, many more questions than what we've published, of course, in the study.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And um, one set of questions referred to their internal structure. Mm-hmm. And then we ask them, for example, um, is your um, the management of your operative or your company, how is it organized? Do you have mainly volunteers or, or part-time? Um, do you have mainly full-time staff? You have just one or you have a, a team of people? And there is a, a yeah, substantial still number of these groups who really do this still on a on voluntary basis, mm-hmm.
2: um,
4: which I think is fantastic. Because they're really these people, they do something for society, and that's mm-hmm. also where why that's also one reason why we are having less of these initiatives, right. because they complain they don't get recognition anymore. Mm-hmm. But of course, with the increasing complexity, and I think that's a matter of fact, complexity of projects is increasing. It is of course, or it makes a lot of sense that there is a, a professional management.
1: So, any last points that you didn't get a chance to put in?
4: Well, I mean, let me just say, I think this this uh, whole um, transformation, we are now really in a battle uh, about market shares. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of those who started this development, they had the vision, but not only for idealistic reasons, uh, but also because and I I see myself as part of of those people. Uh we we had the understanding that a renewable energy system can technically uh, socioeconomically, only work when it's the, the basic structure is, is working in a decentralized way. There's many opportunities for our societies social economic benefits. If you make use of them then we will really have a great future in this regard and uh, if not then just this energy transformation or transition will last much much longer we'll see much more resistance against that. And in this sense, I'm, let's see, I think this break we all have because of the coronavirus crisis, maybe it helps a little bit to rethink the basic approach. Maybe after that break is over, we see new momentum because society has to reorganize now in general. And I think we have good concepts and answers to this.
0: Stefan talks about the principle of subsidiarity, which he defines as citizens should get some privileges over large corporations. I would define that differently. Subsidiarity basically means that political issues should be dealt with at the most immediate or local level and that the EU will only intervene if decisions cannot be made within a member state.
1: Yeah, you can take that all the way down to the municipal level too. So the national government shouldn't intervene if the regional government can do a better job, and the regional government should let municipalities decide if they know better. But there's no clear way to decide. I mean, take education, for instance. France is relatively centralized, so all its school pupils take their final exam for the baccalauréat at the same time. So you have people in overseas territories writing final exams when it's dark outside, because they're taking the test in France as well. Germany is on the other end of the spectrum here. It has 16 states, and each state does its own thing for schools. So they don't even go on vacation at the same time. Now, I'm not trying to say that the one or other approach is better, just that education is one example of how subsidiarity, or letting local people decide what should be done, looks like.
0: Okay. But what role does subsidiarity play for the energy transition? Stefan speaks of preferring citizens over large companies. And I guess that's a way of describing the result of community energy. More people making their own energy reduces the role that big firms can play. So maybe we should argue more for subsidiarity when we call for community renewables. I don't hear that argument much and it seems compelling to me. But when talking about Red 2, he says, the threshold is rather small. A threshold for what?
1: I think he's just talking about project size. He's arguing that we shouldn't think of community projects as just really small stuff. So by threshold, he means a limit on project size. And let me highlight a few things I like about what Stefan said. He argues that big projects do block small ones. We've had that debate in previous episodes, so add Stefan to the camp that believes there is a conflict, even though we need both big and small renewables at this point, which he also says. And I like the way he argues that auctions discriminate against community renewables. Here he's using the language of DG competition, So it might be worth making this argument to them in terms they understand. And his survey also found that community projects often consist of volunteers. So again, maybe we need to professionalize. And finally, I like this sentence. Socioeconomically, the transition can only work with distributed renewables. Central only will take longer. This is the conflict. If we need both big and small, we must acknowledge that big projects can prevent small ones. We must recognize this conflict if we want to move fast.
0: True. And there's one other point for me. As Stefan says, the future should also include not heading towards a centralized and concentrated energy system and market as we are right now. Will Corona help us rethink our energy system? so far I have only seen comments about sustainability and the stimulus package. People argue that we must not rescue the old polluters, but instead invest in a future-proof industry. But I have heard nothing about rethinking our energy system like Stefan calls for. It's about who gets to do sustainability, not just what is sustainable. Let me summarize the effect of auctions from what I've learned today. Feed-in tariffs were replaced by auctions in order to make the energy transition cheaper to bring prices down. What it actually brought us is higher prices, fewer new projects and fewer players building renewables, especially community projects. And I think Stefan Senger is our first interview partner who judged Red 2 positively as a breakthrough. But
1: he won't be the last.
0: Indeed. Our next guest this week sings the praises of Red 2. For the last time in this podcast, we have an interview with someone from a community project stemming from the pioneer days. Dieter Schäfer of Gidea. He is truly living community renewables, having initiated a community wind power project 30 years ago in Murhardt. That's a small town in Baden-Württemberg. And he also runs his own website where he informs people about renewables. He organizes joint letters to policymakers and publishes statements.
1: Yes, and I really wanted to have Dieter on the show because it's not just about new community projects having to go through auctions. It's also about what happens to these pioneer projects when their feed-in tariffs expire after 20 years. So in 2020, the first wind turbines built in 2000 lost their feed-in tariffs. And each year from now on, we lose more, around 2 gigawatts annually in the 2020s. Now, that's roughly twice as much as was added in 2019. So Germany is actively dismantling its wind capacity as we speak. And Dieter's turbines are among those concerned. One of them is dear to me, Grüner Heiner.
0: Yeah, a turbine that is not built by an all-female co-op has also a name.
1: Absolutely. And this turbine was special for me because it was one of the first in southern Germany where I lived at the time. And it was very prominent along the Autobahn. That was in the late 90s. And whenever I drove past it, I thought, that's perfect. It's very prominent on a hill, but there's so much noise from the cars that no one could possibly complain about the turbine.
0: And in 1990, when the project's first windmill was set up, they put a photo on a leaflet together with a slogan, Climate Catastrophe? less carbon emissions, pioneer Windmill Auenberg took action.
1: But feed-in tariffs have expired for these old community projects and we are literally telling all these pioneers, thanks for your work, others will take over now. These projects cannot rebuild outside of auctions. Why is there no outrage about this? Without these people, we would have no energy transition in Germany. Is this really okay? So our next guest represents all these pioneers, and our heart goes out to all of you.
0: And just one clarification before we get started. Dieter Schäfer will talk about the green power privilege. Up to 2014, this law encouraged community groups to sell their green power directly to customers. In other words, wind farm groups like Dieter's were to find their own customers. It's close to the good idea we discussed in the last episode of Community Projects Becoming Full Power Service Providers.
1: And Germany did away with the policy for reasons we won't get into here. It's too complicated.
0: Okay. The stage is set. Here is Dieter Schäfer.
1: How did locals react to the first two wind turbines that uh, you built?
2: kann's nicht verschweigen dass es immer mal wieder einzelne stimmen gegen die windkraftanlagen gab
3: I won't deny that there were individual votes against the wind turbines but there was never any movement behind it at the time the turbines were met with interest and in the first few years there were always small visits to both turbines.
2: An example from Grüner Heiner.
3: At the foot of this hill, across the street, there is a farm. Once, I saw the shadow of the turbine in the middle of the yard, and the shadows of the wings turned over the buildings. I called the couple who ran the farm and asked them if they weren't disturbed. The farmer's wife replied, our animals don't mind.
2: We had started with the
3: slogan a new star in the north of Stuttgart. The citizens of Weilemdorf increasingly saw the wind turbine as a landmark mm-hmm. and awarded it the title Landmark of Weilemdorf. For our small ceremony in September 2010 to celebrate 10 years of wind power on Gruna Heine, the mayor of Weilemdorf also came and was full of praise for the wind turbine. In the meantime, the plant has become an integral part of Weilemdorf. Within the company of just over 70 limited partners, we were marked by the self-confidence of having set a good example and done something right. It is also interesting to note the partner's reaction to an offer from a local electricity supplier, which had nuclear assets but wanted to pay us one cent per kilowatt hour, so they could say in advertising that they contributed. The shareholders from the anti-nuclear scene were against it, others were for it. One shareholder ended the discussion by saying, I am in favor of taking the money, but it hurts me less if we don't take the money than it does other shareholders if the nuclear firm advertises our project. So I am against taking the money. When a local initiative, the Weillendorf Energy Campaign, was formed after the Paris Climate Summit, the wind turbine was a natural part of the objectives. There was a great willingness to use the power from the turbine directly in Weilimdorf. The local initiative wants to keep the site at all costs.
2: Es gab eine hohe Bereitschaft, den Strom der Anlage direkt in Weilimdorf zu nutzen. Die lokale Initiative will den Standort unbedingt erhalten.
1: Okay, so how do you plan to do that?
2: Das ist neh. Ist eine schwierige Geschichte.
3: That's a tough question. There were basically three options. First, the turbine could be dismantled. We didn't want that. Second, repowering on this hill is not an option, because there's only a permit for small units. So the third option is to sell electricity on the power exchange. There are two ways to do this. We can either simply accept what the exchange pays, which means that we have to tighten our belts, or we can try to generate more revenue by finding local buyers. In the end, realism prevailed. The company members wanted to reduce costs. After all, they were largely volunteers and faced with a situation where prices on the exchange could have exceeded current maintenance costs. I always argued we should look for our own buyers so we could earn more, kind of like farmers selling directly on their farm. In 2013, I wanted to use the green power privilege to set up a cooperative that sells electricity. Grüner Heine would have been part of it. But the government abolished the Green Power Privilege in 2014. We looked for a few other options, but our members were not really interested because too many of us felt that we would not achieve anything under this government. The most positive aspect is that the members seem to want to keep their turbine up and running, even if they have to pay for
2: it. Well,
1: what kind of energy policy do you need to keep
2: going? I expect
3: the energy policy of the future to address the central challenges we face. For me, the most important thing is maximum involvement of citizens, so the solutions have to be based on democracy. The law must not, as is currently being prepared, push citizens off the grid and reduce them to the status of more or less flexible customers. The law must instead aim to develop local markets so that citizens responsible for the energy transition can actively participate in and shape the market with new technologies.
1: You also talk about democratizing the energy sector. What do you mean by that?
2: The
3: president of the German Renewable Energy Federation was quoted as saying, it was not the big energy companies, but citizens who democratized the energy supply and brought about the grassroots energy transition. Now, we must succeed in using these new opportunities created by the EU to promote citizen energy more strongly again. For me, the market is part of democracy. For me, personal freedom includes not only freedom of assembly but also freedom of enterprise and hence the right to form communities that take care of themselves. Free citizens can also help each other out and exchange goods on the market. That's a crucial part of democracy. Renewable and modern technology makes a real local market possible. Thanks to modern control technology, distributed systems can be operated fully automatically. Technically, a local electricity market for the citizens is possible. This is how I imagine it. To the second part of the statement, bringing citizens' energy back on track, this begins with a realistic and honest understanding of the market for electricity and the freedom of the citizens to shape this local market, these many local markets, in their respective living environment. This is then a democratization of the energy sector. And that is what the EU directives offer us.
1: What do you think about the new Renewable Energy Directive?
3: I think it's awesome. Together with the Electricity Market Directive, this is the program for the democratization of energy supply. Remember, in its vision of the 25th of February 2015, the EU Commission made us a promise where it published a communiqué entitled a framework strategy for a crisis-proof energy union with a future-oriented climate action strategy. The focus is on citizens taking responsibility for energy supply, using new technologies to reduce their energy costs and actively participating on a market where vulnerable customers are protected. This, as I understand it, is the promise of democratization of renewable energy supply. And the EU has kept its word. RED 2 and the Electricity Market Directive provide, as I see it, a legal basis for the democratization of energy
0: supply in Europe.
2: So, let me get
0: this right. After the feed and tariffs run out, There's no profitable business model for keeping the windmill up, but the company members even have to pay to keep it running. Wow, that's really impressive.
1: It just goes to show that community projects are not only in it for the money. They really want to make the world a better place.
0: It's refreshing to listen to a real experience with local renewables and that clears up the common prejudices about acceptance people and animals feeling disturbed, and so on.
1: Indeed, and I've seen cattle grazing between wind turbines and sheep grazing in solar fields. These animals don't seem to mind.
0: The Grüner Heiner windmill was even turned into a landmark, a symbol of doing the right thing. And it shows us that it's natural to have people in a community who are not of the same opinion. But by coming together, by cooperating, talking, they find a convenient solution for all. I personally liked his addition to the definition of democracy. Freedom of trade and citizens being able to provide services of general interest themselves. With renewables, we now have a technology that can be used and generated in a democratic, decentralized way.
1: Yes, this is new. Until recently, households were not able to make their own energy easily. So we need to recognize the benefits of small renewables, including at the community level. Municipal utilities can become much stronger with renewables. So Rebecca, what are your takeaways?
0: So. I wasn't aware that we will lose so much installed renewable energy capacity because feed-in tariffs run out. And we are not on track in even balancing out the current capacities. My second takeaway is, the abolishment of feed-in tariffs kills community energy. And lastly, renewables have the technological potential to democratize our energy system And the EU provides us with the legal framework. We now have to get this implemented and done. With Dieter Schäfer's vision for the future, we have already gotten into the mood for our next and final episode, number 10, where the future of community energy is the central question. And for the answers, we will listen to many guests from the whole podcast. We hope you will join us one last time. You have been listening to the Community Renewables Podcast, produced by Germany's Renewable Energy Agency, the AEE, for the local community renewables project LICO. The project is funded by the European Union's Northern Periphery and Arctic Programme 2014-2020, which is supported by the European Regional Development Fund. We would also like to thank the German Community Energy Alliance, BBEN, and the Heinrich Böll Foundation for their special support. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag. Freitag for future! (laughs) And our producer is Energy Transition Chronicler, Craig Morris, advisor at the AEE. The overdubbing of the interviews in German was spoken by Pascal Morris. And the music throughout this podcast is from the best Irish folk band ever from Japan. Tricolor! Check the show notes for links to their music. Art is what makes us human. So support your local artists after all this Corona business is over.
1: So Rebecca, we have gotten reactions from some of our guests to our jokes. You remember Lisa Benda from episode one? Yeah. Well, she wrote in and sent me a joke that can't be translated. She sent it in German.
0: Hmm. Jokes you have to explain are always the best.
1: (laughs) Right. So she's a pastor in the Protestant church and hers is a religious joke. So you have to know that Essen is a big city in Germany's Ruhr area. And you have to know that the word Essen also translates as food or maybe supper.
0: Okay, let's hear it.
1: Alright, what did God say when he, or she, finished making the Ruhr area? I don't know. Essen is ready. <laughs>
0: okay, okay. so like, supper is ready.
1: Yeah, it, it's uh, <laughs> it, maybe it's funnier in German.
0: <laughs> Alright, well, next week we will be back with our two favorite jokes sent in by our guests. For now, we're signing off.